Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. You're not going to believe this. Oh, oh my God. God. Five stars. Five and a half stars. Papa. My dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy. Hey, hey, The phony baloney. And a tit for tatter. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Introducing Briner Agassi. He's a drummer, a music producer, and he owns his own publishing company. He's a podcaster and host of the Mixing Board podcast, where he interviews drummers, artists, producers, and musicians. Briner, welcome. Hello. How are you? I am well. How are you? Tired. Tired. (laughs) (laughs) Needless to say, tired. (laughs) That's it. Tired, man. It's, yeah. I obviously can relate to that, right? Because I'm a mom of four. And what's Mm -hmm. so interesting is just this week, I got my kid to sleep through the night. He's literally 25 months. No kidding. Wow. Congratulations. (laughs) Congratulations to you too, because I know you have a new one. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know what? It's so crazy. So we have Ava, who's four years old, and then right on her fourth birthday, we're like, or no, I'm sorry, right on her third birthday, we're like, okay, we are almost there. We are at that point that we can travel again, we can go out, we can do stuff, and you know, she's good. And then we get pregnant, and then all those hopes and dreams just go out the door, and now it's like, she turned four years old, and it's, Balin was born April 30th and then all of a sudden we just reverse time back four years and it's like oh my god sleepless nights i literally i probably go off of like five hours sleep this past three weeks now am i joking it's crazy yeah it's crazy it is and it's a whole new maturity right yeah absolutely it is absolutely it you know it's it's really really funny because we all thought my daughter was going to be very jealous and we were like, oh, you know, because she's clingy to mom and she's just, you know, I want attention, all that. So when he was born and we brought him home, oh, my God, she's running. I want to hold him. I want to kiss him. She's kissing him all on the face. And I'm like, oh, that's so cute. And she puts him on her lap and she's like, hi, hi. And he's kissing him. I was like, that's beautiful. So needless to say, there's no jealousy there, which is great. I'm really happy about that. But I'll let you know how that goes. I don't know how the kids and jealousy works out, but I'll let you know what happens. (laughs) I like this to just be totally conversational. And I know from yours that Mm -hmm. you start your podcast with a Uh quote. So Mm -hmm. I actually picked one of yours. No, nice, nice. And wanted to read it. The ability to express yourself through your work and change the lives of others from that work is an artist. Mm. Mm. I would love to talk about what an artist is and how you became one Mm. and identifying as one. Many times, a lot of people have difficulty expressing themselves. And many times I'll go through, you know, being a little kid, you either picked on, made fun of, and you don't know, because, you know, mom and dad will say, hey, don't fight. You got to tell the teacher. You can't, you know, don't, don't do this. Don't do that. So you're almost kind of living within yourself and you don't know how to express yourself because maybe someone's making fun of you or anything like that. Now, I'm not saying that's the case for everyone, but at some point in all of our life, 
something happens to, to many people who just don't know how to openly communicate their emotions and their feelings and their thoughts. So as you grow up, you need an outlet. Now, a lot of people use working out as an outlet, football, bodybuilding, cooking could be an outlet. Everyone's going to be different. Music's the same way because growing up, I could tell you this, the day I knew I was more, I was a little different than the rest was when we were singing bingo, B-I-N-G-O. I kid you not. We were singing B-I-N-G-O in kindergarten and I got sad. And I was like, no, that's different. Everyone's clapping, having fun. But this song kind of makes me sad. It kind of hurts right here in my heart. It really hurts my heart a little bit. And then what happened was, as we're singing these songs in, in, in grade school, the songs were affecting me differently, each and every single one. Some of them were making me really happy. Some of them were making me sad. And of course, my father being a singer, I was surrounded by music and instruments. So every time I noticed I was being sad, I would take to the piano or I would go pick up my drumsticks and I would play and I would just express myself. Now, trust me, I, I didn't have the maturity at that point to know, okay, I'm connecting the two, but I knew that, you know, I couldn't really talk to my parents about my feelings. I was just in myself. Maybe I was a little bit more reserved with my parents growing up. I didn't really open up to them. I would really just take to music. I would listen to music. I would listen to music that would make me happy. And stuff that made me sad, I would, again, go back and play the happy music. So I knew there was a big difference in the way I felt and the way I identified myself than the other kids. And so that's really what it was. It got to a point where when I connected the two dots of playing music and making me happy, I was like, okay, wow, you know, I'm picking my drumsticks. And when I'm sad, I'm playing a very much more somber rhythm here and I'm expressing myself differently with the the dynamics or may, I might go sit behind the piano and I might touch the piano very lightly and it's like wow this is a real soft expression of my sadness and then if I'm really happy I'm just banging around all the place and I'm just playing some cool music and that's when I identify I said I am an artist this is what an artist does and as I've just gotten older and just matured a lot through music I've seen the power of music or just the power of art, the power of a painter, a writer, a, you know, a poet, someone who creates and gives it out to the world. And then the world takes it and makes it their own. And then you start looking into music for film, music for video games. And it's like, you know, what? this just makes sense. I'm creating a piece of music that brings to life a certain emotion within us or on the big screen. And that's where you put the music onto, let's say, Terminator, right? Or Jurassic Park. And that's where the movie just comes alive because there's big horns and it's making this expression that you're seeing on the screen and it's something's building up inside of you. So with that quote, when I wrote that quote, I really went back in time to when I was a little kid. And I said, this is what art is really all about. It's not about the monetary aspect of it. It's not about popularity. It's none of that. It's if you're in it to really express yourself and communicate with other individuals, the way you feel through your music or your art or whatnot, that's, that's an artist. Music definitely awakens something within mm. me. So I can understand that. I can't believe that it started with bingo though. Yeah, seriously. 
and even the gingerbread man story. I got sad off the gingerbread man story where at the end he gets eaten up by, I think it's like the dog the or the fox. wolf or something. The fox. And I'm like, that sucks. Why do they have to kill him? When did you become okay with calling yourself sensitive? Probably not until the last maybe seven, eight years. I'm not kidding you. You can ask my wife because she'd be like, you know, you're sensitive. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm not sensitive. And it's like, okay, okay, you're not sensitive. I'm like, yeah, oh, okay, I might be a little sensitive. She's like, I just told you that. It's one of those things because I, I think just I wasn't comfortable with the word sensitive. I just wasn't comfortable being vulnerable to anyone else, you know, maybe, maybe to my wife, maybe to my best friend, maybe someone, you know, close, but I was not at all comfortable with just admitting to myself saying, Hey, I'm sensitive, but now I'm sensitive. So yeah, I, you know, you got it out of me. I'm not afraid. Do you to think admit that's it. a quality of artists? I do. I do. And I think it even translates over to just, you know, it's a fine line, I think, artist and just a non-artist. To me, I think everyone's an artist to some degree, to some fashion. Everyone's an artist. It's just we're all different artists in our own right. Now, you know, the mathematician, he may not look or she may not look at herself or himself as an artist, but shit, let's just be serious. What they do is art. This just goes off into what we see today with social media and the world and how we all interact with one another. You know, I don't care what side of the politic side you're on. It doesn't matter. You know, everyone's open to have their own opinion and that's fine. That's that's what it's all about. But just because you say something about this individual, why am I retaliating against you and just becoming very negative? And just be, and just start and talk down on you. And that's that's because I'm sensitive. You're saying something that really bothers me for some reason that I have to get on the attack. And I think social media has really, really brought out that quality in people and people still don't want to admit it. How has social media affected your world as far as being an artist and having to be a certain way for social media? Yeah, I struggle with it. I still struggle with it to this day. And I'll tell you why. I'm not saying social media is bad, right? We all love it. We're all on it. We, we view things, we laugh, we, you know, we share things. But I do think that at some degree, it's hurt the industry. And I'll, and I'll talk about me personally too, but I think as an industry whole, it's hurt because we don't have record labels. We don't really need management or marketing teams because you and I are the marketing team. We are the management. I go out there and if I can get views some ways how, eyes are on you. And I think that's where people start taking advantage of it and start deterring from their art and start doing things that may not be them, but if they can get attention, we'll do it. We're in an environment that we want to entertain our eyes. We don't necessarily want to entertain anything else because it's go, go, go. It's really forced people to have like an ADD type of, you know, visual effects to themselves. And we just want to be entertained all the time. Hence, for me, how it's affected it, to bring it all back, it's like, well, I have my studio, I'm a drummer, I'm a producer. I find it very difficult, very, very difficult to just keep posting daily. You know, I don't want to do that. And I know I should do that because there's this, now there's a thing of I should or I shouldn't, but if you stick tr true to who you are, 
you're on the right path. And it doesn't matter if I have 14,000 followers or 400,000 followers, as long as I'm staying true to my art, that person visiting my page will say, Hey, I like you. You're a drummer, you're a producer, you have your own podcast. I want to do some more research about you. I want to see what you're all about. If I can't invite you into my home being who I am, if I have to fake it with you, then you're not, you're not getting to know me. You're just getting to know this persona that you want to know and you want to like. And then at that point, I have to change myself for every single person viewing my page. It's like, I'm just going to stay true to who I am, leave it at that. But I think that's how social media has really affected a lot of people in the industry. Right. Like, how can you have that bingo experience? Like, <laughs> how can you yeah. be affected on a soul level, if it's an ADHD connection. It's so hard to do that. Now. It's so hard to do that. You know, and I'm not trying to put down anyone out there who's who's on the grind, hustling, doing their thing. But at some point, we have to say as, a, as an artist, as a musician, are you drawing on my emotions here? Are you, is there some musicality to you that's just amazing or is it just the showmanship that i'm viewing i'm liking wow you're super fast and you're doing all these you know stick twirls and you know you're playing the guitar behind your neck and all that kind of stuff that's cool what are you drawing out of me because at this point you're entertaining me but is that what you want to be known for you want to be an entertainer or do you want to be an artist right when the 2020 we were celebrating my daughter's birthday my family came over, my parents and my in-laws were here. My daughter, I'm, I kid you not, I've posted this. My daughter takes the cake, slides it off the table. As it slides off the table, I literally run and I, I'm not kidding you, it's a centimeter away from the ground. I dive and I pick it up and it's on my hand and I'm like, oh shit. My sister caught the whole thing on video. I posted that up on my Instagram. Now get this, I posted that on TikTok and I don't, I did not have a TikTok account. I opened one up that day and I said, I'm just going to throw it on here. Guess how many views? 5.4 million views. I had so many conch, like this contractual, like agreement, sign this, we're going to put it. And I'm like, no, I'm going to lose the rights to it. Right. I don't, I don't want to do that. And then it really makes you think like, wow. I got 5.4 million views for entertaining, but it's like, you know what? I don't want to expose my daughter who's barely three or four. Imagine your childhood being mm. put up on TikTok. What moments would those have been? If I could take any moment in my childhood to put on TikTok, it would literally be me playing drums at home or playing with my wrestling dolls in my room with the little Hulk Hogan's and Iron Sheik dolls that I had. I would wrestle them. That's something that would be like the most fun that you would see in, in my life. Other than that, I literally was a quiet kid and I stayed to myself. Right. You mentioned earlier that you didn't really talk to your parents, that you were reserved. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I was because, so I'm Assyrian. So in the Chicago area, there's a large Assyrian community. So for all the listeners who don't know who Assyrians are, I'll give you a little tiny history lesson on it. So Assyrian, the modern day Iraq was once upon a time was Mesopotamia. And that's where all the Assyrians live. Assyrians and the Armenians are the only two Eastern 
groups that are from ancestry. They, they are Christian. So, you know, there was a big genocide that happened to all the Christians and the Assyrians were wiped out completely from Iraq. And then it was renamed Iraq. Many Assyrians, their ancestors are from Iraq. Some of them fled to Syria, some fled to Iran. My ancestry line, all from Iran. But if you go down the ancestry, we're all from Iraq, really, because that's where our roots are. So my parents moved from Iran in 1979-ish, and they actually moved to Chicago. My dad being a singer, being this larger-than-life personality within our community, eyes were on me because in San Jose, and then we ended up moving to Modesto, in that area, there's always we moved to, you know, the, the Assyrian communities where there was a lot of Assyrian community. And in Modesto, where we ended up living, there's a large Assyrian community. So for me, it was like, eyes are on you. Dad's a celebrity. Get good grades. Do this. You know, it's, it's that type of thing that you grow up with. And, you know, again, don't get into fights. Don't cause trouble. Because, again, everything was focused on your dad. And I think a lot of, a lot of celebrity kids that I've talked to their life has been like that because it's like, you know, you're almost somewhat, dare I say, living in the shadow of dad. You know, it's like, hey, he's a prominent figure in the community. You don't want to do something that's going to impact him negatively and have people talk. So it's like, okay, okay, fine. So automatically, I just don't know how to act. You know, I just don't know how to just be myself because when we moved to Modesto, I was about six years old. So automatically, I'm in this new school, new friends, new everything. I'm not comfortable. I don't tell people that my dad's a singer because I'm somewhat like, I'm not, I'm not embarrassed by it, but good luck telling someone, hey, my dad's a singer. And they're like, oh, what kind of music did he sing? And they're like, well, Assyrian music. And they're like, what the hell is that? It's like, okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like, kind of gets stuck. You know, it's not like my dad's Michael Jackson. So you could go like, oh, my dad's Michael Jackson. Everyone's like, oh my God, it's Michael Jackson. It's not like that. So I was just always very reserved about that. So I would always be very closed off just about my own life. And it's like, hey, you know, what do your parents do? And I'm like, oh, my dad's a singer. And just stop right there. You know, I don't go into it. My mom's house mom. My sister goes to school. That's it. Let's go play. But for me growing up, it was always music. I always had music playing in my head. So no one else connected with me on that. No one. Like everyone wanted to go play football, baseball, basketball. I didn't want to do those things. That's a lot of pressure. Yeah, it was. When did that change for you? I can't say that it changed later in life up until maybe when I actually moved out from home. It was when I said to myself, I am a musician. Done. I'm a musician. I'm an artist. I don't care about everything else. Like I, this is who I am. And that made me more comfortable being who I am, inviting people into my circle and just opening up about my life. That's when, you know, everything started clicking for me. And I'm like, you know, I feel a lot more comfortable being who I am, just being myself. I don't have to put up a facade. I don't have to be reserved. You know, I can just be myself and I can express myself through my art. I wear my emotions on my sleeve. I am sensitive, you know, all those things. So that's when it all came full circle for me. Do you still feel like you need to say you're the son of a celebrity? <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't do that. But now when people tell like, hey, what does your dad do? And my dad's a singer. Or all openly, when I talk to other musicians, it's like, 
like I was telling you, like, yeah, I grew up, my dad's a singer. I was involved with music all the time. There is no more shyness about like, oh yeah, my dad sings. I can answer those questions because I'm just comfortable with it because I too now am involved in music. My parents always told me not to be involved in music growing up because my dad struggled a lot when he was younger. And so, you know, and in the Assyrian community, it's it's a lot smaller than the Western community of trillions of Americans out there. Go ahead. Good luck making it. He just wanted to protect me. So it was like, go to school, get good grades. And if you want to do music, use it as a hobby. And I hate that word when it comes to anything art, but use it as a hobby. And I actually believe that. And, but there was a shift when I was 20. That's when everything just kind of shifted for me. And I said, no, 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 no. There's no such thing as hobby. There's no such thing as not becoming a musician. This is who I am. I'm going that direction. Was there like a catalyst for that shift? I actually became my dad's drummer at the age of 16. So I would literally play gigs with him locally when he was in California. Because he still to this day, not right now because of COVID, but still tours Europe, Australia, the whole world. He'll tour the world. But when he's in California, I will be the drummer. And when I was 16, I took over that responsibility. So I was like, okay, this is cool. I like it. But again, I'm in high school. I mean, this is a hobby. This is cool. This is fun. I, I get to play with dad. I get to go on stage and do my thing. It wasn't until I started meeting other musicians. That's when I started falling deeper in love with music. And I knew that my musical ability went far beyond what I'm doing with my own dad. I tell you this, this is the God honest truth. I was pursuing music slowly, but what ended up happening is my then girlfriend, now wife, we went and saw Nine Inch Nails at the Hollywood Bowl, October 1st, 2005. I went to that concert. I walked out of that concert and I said, <laughs> I said, I need to play for Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> I said, I have to move to Los Angeles. I need to play for that man. I need to play for Trent Reznor. Now, I never got the opportunity to play for Trent Reznor, but my whole goal was I need to move to LA. I need to pursue music. I want to go in there and just be enthralled with music. At the time, I was working at Wells Fargo as a personal banker. I was the number one banker the whole year. I'm leading all of California. My numbers went, they went down. I had zero interest in working. I'm not even joking. How can you go from being number one, all of a sudden you've gone to like number five, nine, 20, 30, like you're not even on the top 10 anymore, dude. What are you doing? March 31st, I'm in LA in my apartment. So a matter of, what is that, four or five months, it, I made the transition to quit my job, pack up my stuff, get an apartment and be in LA. And then that's when the wild ride started with music and everything. So Okay, take me to the wild ride. Yeah, yeah, Welcome yeah, yeah. to LA, baby. Take me there. <laughs> Sex, drugs, rock and roll, man. I, I, I will say this. I will say this. A lot happened. Let's just say, okay, drugs were never involved. So I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. Drugs were never involved. I'm pretty. I'm pretty straight edge with that thing. I, I have a very addicting personality. So I knew if I ever get started in in this lane, <laughs> I'm going. 1000 miles an hour and I'm not stopping. So I never got involved in anything I knew I couldn't control. So drugs definitely not going to be part of the equation, but I opened up my eyes to how the industry works really fast. And 
I'll be brutally honest with you. It wasn't very pleasant because again, remember, I'm a sensitive kid who always held everything to himself. You know, you could say you need thick skin for the industry. You do. You really do. I mean, it's good to have thick skin. And I don't know if I want to say thick skin, because if you have thick skin, then in my opinion, you just won't feel. And it's good to feel, but you just have to be mindful, mindful of why these things are happening. So long story short, I, at the time there was MySpace, you remember MySpace, right? So I went on to MySpace and there was a band called Sex Cobra. No, I know (laughs) that. They were good. They were really good. I was like, hold on. I really dig their style. Like these guys are really like the songs are really catchy. So they were auditioning drummers. I was like, okay, you know what? First audition, I'm going. What do I have to lose? I came to LA to experience this, to go in audition and just see kind of where I'm falling. You know, I I just want to go out and audition. So I email the guys and I'm like, Hey, you know, I really like your music. And I noticed that you guys are looking for a drummer. I want to throw my name in the hat. Let me come audition. They're like, dude, yeah, absolutely. Here's a couple songs, learn them. And then we're going to hold um, auditions in two weeks. Come, come around. I was like, cool. I remember going to the audition at the time. I didn't think of anything. I was just playing and they were like, Oh my God, this song has never sounded this good. Let's, let's do it again. I was like, hell yeah, let's go. So we're rocking, we're laughing, we're talking. Then the questions started coming. Hey, so who do you know? And I'm like, I, I don't know. Like, what do you mean? Who do I know? Like, yeah, do you guys, do you have like any, in, you know, industry insiders or anything? I was like, no, nah, not really. They're like, okay, that's cool. I'm friends with Andy Dick. You know, the other guy's telling me this. He's like, I'm friends with Andy Dick and Andy Dick has this, you know, show and he's thinking about using our music and, you know, we just want to see like, you know, if you know anyone in the industry and stuff, I was like, no, man, I just moved to LA like a few weeks ago from Modesto. I'm totally new. They're like, that's cool, man. Dude, we love you. We just have a couple more auditions. We have to do them. But dude, you're the guy. We want you. Like it, it was one of those things where we're shaking hands, hugging. They're talking about MTV. They're talking about doing music. I was like, dude, I literally walked out of there thinking to myself, shit, this is what everyone says. I went to LA. I made it overnight, blah, blah, blah. I just did it. And I'll never forget. I left there at 10 o'clock at night. As I'm leaving, this other guy comes in, Peter. We just kind of like looked at each other like, oh, okay. I got done with my audition. Now it's your turn. Good luck. But I felt confident because they're walking me out. They're hugging me. They're like, dude, this is great. I went to Winchell Donuts. I got some donuts. I went home, kicked my feet up. I'm literally relaxing. I'm like, I got this. I'm happy. I'm excited. Turns out, I didn't get the gig. The guy that just came into the audition after me got it. He ends up making friends with me on MySpace a month after. And he starts messaging me. He's like, hey, dude, just to let you know, I'm the guy that you think got your gig. (laughs) He's like, but just to let you know, they kicked me out too. And he's like, all they were after was people in the industry who can get them in. And he's like, man, I'd love to have lunch with you. You're an awesome drummer. I just want to get to know you, this and that. So we had lunch. We became friends. This is the industry. So when everyone always asks me, like, how is it in LA? How is it? It's changed now. It's it's complete. Now it's different than it was in 06. But when I started then, this is how it was. Everyone was trying to pick and pull from everyone else and network. 
and yeah, that's just how it was. Yeah, I actually was out in LA at the same time. So really? I totally remember that. I would love to talk about how LA has changed over the last decade. I know oh, yeah. that a lot of shows have become unionized, which mm-hmm. is a big change. It is a big change. And a lot has changed just within music. For me, I remember when people wanted to join bands. And I can, that's like one example. I can, I can literally write a book on how many auditions I went through and some of the characters I met. It is crazy. It was a community of musicians, but that changed. The more that we saw the evolution of social media, the more you saw the evolution of independent artists. And then all of a sudden you saw this crumbling situation happen with the record labels where the record labels were like, dude, we're not making that much money anymore because people are downloading. We're not making money off of you. We're going to make money off of you on tours. So what used to not be a 360 deal now is a 360 deal, meaning we're going to take profits. We're going to take all the money everywhere from your merchandise to your tours, from your albums to everything that we can make money because we need to make money back off of you. We're promoting you, but we're not making any money off just sales because people are downloading for free. That's what ended up happening in the industry. That's where musicians started saying, okay, well, screw it. I'm not going to do a band. I don't need a record label. I'm just going to do a one man type of working environment. And that's where you saw the evolution of producers. How do you balance the business side with the love of music side? Oh, that, that, that's the hardest thing. That's the, I struggle with that to this day because my hat's off to anyone who can do it. And I always recommend to anyone, if you, if you're a musician, you're going into something, make friends with the guy who likes to shoot video, make friends with that because you can do music, invite them over three hours a day, have them do video and just have them edit some things for you to post up every day for like a week and then repeat that same cycle. But when you're in it by yourself, it's the hardest thing. And I don't think I've even mastered it right now. As an artist, the money is the last thing you think about or even care about because it's like, if I have to think about music that's going to make me money, then I'm not staying true to myself. Now, there are a lot of people who do it. And I'm not saying I haven't where it's like, you know, they, they want to cue and it's like, hey, make something pop. And it's like, okay, I'll make this pop thing. But it's not who I am. But then you got the other side, the business side. And it's like, how do you balance it? It's hard. I still don't think I've perfected it. When did you start playing the piano and the drums? Drums probably around four. When my dad would have parties and concerts, I would always be on stage with him. He would take me up there with him. I was always so intrigued with the drums, just how beautiful they were. They were just such a sexy instrument. Piano, I always had a little synthesizer at home and I would always hear something and I knew I could connect the dots, but it wasn't until later on in life that I actually started really sitting down, dedicating time, maybe 16, 17 years old. I pulled out my dad's keyboard and I took it upstairs and I actually just started playing and I, it's self-teaching. Talk to me about how the podcast evolved also. (laughs) The podcast, I had an idea to do the podcast back in 2006. When I moved to LA, podcasting was like, like you had like one podcast out there and like probably had like 10 listeners. Okay. It it was a rarity, but I had in mind, I said to myself, I want to do a podcast. And I had a friend back then that he talked me out of it. And he's like, you want to do a podcast? Bro, who listens to podcasts? Why do you want to do a podcast? And I was like, all right, yeah, that's true. I won't do it. I didn't do the podcast. 
I ended up years later, we're talking 2016, my music partner and business partner, Mike, he started creating music for our own library for displaced music, what we call it. We finished our initial 10 songs and we were working like day in, day out on these things, really trying to perfect them. Mike went off and said, okay, I'm going to get married. And I'm like, okay, cool. You know, right on. I'm never going to see you again, probably. Because, <laughs> you know, marriage happens and life changes. So I knew that we were going to have a little bit of a pause there. You know what I mean? We made our music. Now it's like, okay, you're going to go off, get married. What am I going to do here? What, you know, how am I going to do it? Because he is one person who inspires me and motivates me to write. Our working energy, our connection, our chemistry is so magical. It's just, it's perfect. So I just said to myself, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to do my podcast. Why not? We did this displaced music. We have the music in our library. Why not go out and do this podcast now better than ever? Because you know what? I, I have a little bit of name recognition out there. I got my website. I got my music. I am a musician. I can reach out to people. So hence came the mixing board, the name of the podcast, the mixing board. And I said, okay, that's what it's going to be. And I started emailing people and lo and behold, I started getting responses back. One of which was Peter Erskine, who's legends among legend, legendary drummer, Peter Erskine. He was one of the first that got back to me and said, sure. And I was like, oh shit. Come on, my first episode, and I'm going to have Peter Erskine on the show? Like, you got to be kidding me. Like, let me get my feet wet with some, like, local guys just so I can, like, screw up the episode and this and that. He comes back and says, yeah, go ahead and come on over. Here's my address. I'm like, no, no, this is not happening. Like, how do I get Peter Erskine on my first show? And then who else am I going to go after? Like, come on. But I will say this. Looking back at it now, I remember going there and uh, he's been on the show twice. He's, he's a lovely man. He's actually a professor at USC in, in their music department. I remember going there. I remember setting up and he was just looking at, and I think he probably saw that like, okay, maybe I was just kind of like, I like to think I wasn't. I like to think I was cool as a cucumber, but I have to say I was probably like a deer in headlights because it's the first one. Like, come on. You know what I mean? With the with the top-notch legends among legendary drummers. So I literally hit record and he looks at me and he just goes, he just goes. And that was the first episode that just did it all. And we sat there for a good two hours having an absolutely amazing conversation about life and music and politics. And he's like, you know, showing me these songs from him and John Williams. And it's like, oh my God, this is like, I never felt more comfortable in my life, doing and talking and being around like-minded people. And that was the time that was like, yeah. And he was asking me questions like, you know, do you play? What do you play? My dad, and that's when it just came naturally. Yeah, my dad's a singer too. And it's like, great. There was no, what does he sing? What, there was no, have. oh, he's a singer. Done, he's a singer. You're a musician, like you're here. Like you're one of, like, you know, you're you're in. Like you're a musician, I'm a musician. Fog, what about Phil hours. Phil Toll, yes. I tell you, he's an absolutely lovely human being. He's an absolutely lovely human being. I kid you not. That was an awesome interview. You liked it? Yeah. Yeah. I could tell you were really into it too. Oh, I was. I was. I watched Phil Toll 
during the time in 05 when I was like, I'm going to become a musician and I'm watching him with Metallica going through this like psychiatric thing. And I'm like, now he's on the show. Now we keep in touch. It's like, wow. Doesn't that feel like law of attraction-ish? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, big time, big time, big time. You know, just not just him, everyone that I've had on, it's like, there's this certain connection that we all have. It's a musical. It's an artist. It's we're connected some way. We may not make music together, but we are making music for the masses and it's who we are. And that's again, where it's back to being an artist and all artists are connected in some way. In my opinion, when you talk to a lot of artists, let's say drummers, for example, right? Nine times out of 10, they're asked, what drum do you use? How do you tune your drums? And it's like, you know what? If you want to hear that stuff, there is a thousand interviews. But what I want to know is I want to know you. I want to know the human being. I want to know the person behind the artistry. And a perfect example of this was Peter Erskine, where he started going off on politics. He's like, look, I'm a liberal. I don't know what you are. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm a liberal too. So, so we're like talking. He's like, do you know, blah, blah, blah. And I had so many emails come in saying, wow, I've never heard. Peter Erskine being that transparent about life, you dig in deep because artists are people too. It's just what we see on social media, what we see on TV and through the music is just that. It's just the music. It's just the art. But for me, it's like, I want to dig in deeper to this person. They have a soul. They have a heart. They have a mind. And I know for a fact that they're sick and tired of being asked the same questions. So it's a breath of fresh air. Just like I came on the show right now and you're talking to me about me being sensitive, you know, tell me I was when growing up. And it's like, you know, no one's ever asked me these questions before. So this is amazing because you get to uncover this whole different side. That's I want to know the story too about your partner, Mike. (laughs) So this is 2008. I get a, again, Craigslist is all the rage. That's how people are finding one another. I see a post, someone is looking for a drummer who's into industrial music, which is me, and who likes to produce music. And I'm like, oh my God, that's me. I'm the drummer, I'm the producer, industrial rock, that's all me, I love that stuff. So I hit him up and I'm like, hey dude, I don't know who else you've talked to, but I'd love to audition. He's like, sure, what's your website? I'm like, yeah, here's my MySpace. And he's like, dude, I've seen your stuff before. And I'm like, hey, cool. Do you have anything of yours? He's like, yeah. And I'm like, dude, I've seen your stuff before. Where can I come audition? He's like, you know what? He's like, I live on a boat in San Diego. (laughs) I was like, okay. He's like, you can bring some drum stuff here. He's like, I have a little space you could set up or I can come down there and we can meet up at a studio. Yeah. I'm like, no, no, no. Come down here. Come to LA. Let's go jam at a studio. He's like, cool. So he comes down. We spend the day together and we're just jamming. And there's a good vibe. There's a good connection. Fast forward a couple of days later, he's like, hey, man, he's like, I've talked to this guitarist. His name is Mike. I want you to talk to him because I also want to see how you feel about him. And I said, okay, cool. So I call him. Now, again, we haven't necessarily formed a band, but he wants me to talk to this guy just to get a sense of how he is. So I talked to Mike. I'm like, Hey, Mike, this is Briner. How are you? He's like, oh, good. I'm like, yeah, Nate told me to call you and just kind of talk to you and see if you're interested in jamming with us. He's like, yeah, yeah, I am. I'm like, okay, great. I'm like, cool, Mike. I'm like, hey, by the way, here's my number. You know, here's 
my first name, last name. I'm like, what's your, he's like, Agassi. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, why? He's like, my last name is Mansur. I'm like, are you Syrian? He's like, yeah, I'm half Syrian. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah. He's like, dude, again, the name recognition. He's like, I knew your last name from somewhere, Agassi. I'm like, yeah, okay. So now things are getting a lot more, you know, he's half Assyrian, I'm Assyrian, he knows me, and I, it's like, okay, there's a six degrees of separation there somehow, because now when we look back, our families know one another too, in some degree. Yeah, I know, it's it's crazy. But check this out, it it gets a lot weirder than this. It gets a lot weirder than this, trust me, I haven't heard anything yet. So I talked to him, and he's like, yeah, let's jam. I I called this Nate. The guy's name is Nate, who lives on a boat. I'm like, hey, man, Mike said he wants to jam. Let's go ahead and do it. He's like, cool. Nate comes down to LA. We all go down and meet at a studio and we jam. And it feels really, really good. It feels really connected. We do this twice. On the second time, because look, let's face it, off days. You know, some days we're just not going to feel like jamming. And, you know, so I don't know what it was, but after the second time we jammed, Nate, on our drive, because Nate came to my place, and then I took him back to my place after the studio so he can get in his car, and he's going to go back to San Diego. He's like, you know, I don't know about this guy, Mike, man. I'm like, oh, shit. Because now, there's a little bit of a connection with this guy. And I don't, I'm like, okay, I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, you know what? I want to give him one more shot. And I'm like, okay. He's like, but I got to be honest with you, bro. I don't think he's going to be the guitarist for the band. And I'm like, now I'm thinking like band. I'm like, oh shit now. Okay, this is getting really weird. So we meet up a third time on our way to the studio. He's telling me we got to kick him out. I'm like, are you, uh, are you serious? He's like, yeah, we, I got to kick him out. He's like, but I want it to come from both of us. I'm like, okay, all right. <laughs> I'll never forget. I'll never forget this. This is 2008, the end of 2008. Okay. So we go to the studio. I'm like embarrassed. I'm just, I I just want to escape my own skin. I don't want to be there. I just don't want to be there. We're jamming. And I thought it was great. All of a sudden he's like, all right, guys, can we just huddle up really fast? I just want to talk to everyone. I'm like, oh God. He goes on to say, you know, Brian and I were talking and we just don't think you're a good fit for this band. And I swear to you, I, I, I swear to you, that day he actually started to sing and i'm like this guy can't even sing like when he wants to sing he can't even sing so it's like i don't even know if i want to be in with him like he wants to kick mike out i don't even know if i want to be stuck with this guy because he's not really you know what i mean like there's not much here and i actually like mike like it's not that the fact that we kind of know one another it's just that he and i actually are connecting on this musical thing so so we sit around and he looks at Mike. He's like, yeah, I don't think it's going to work out. Briner thinks so too. And I'm looking, I'm like, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't think we're, you know, I don't think it's going to work out. He's And Mike, I'll never forget it. He was, he, you could just tell he was sad. I remember I was like, all right, guys, you know, I think it's time to go. I remember we were packing up and, and this is just awkward. Like you just kick the guy out. We don't want to ever jam with you. So now it's, you know, all right, let's tear everything down. So we all walk out of the studio together. Nate goes up to Mike, shakes his hand. He says, hey, thanks for everything. I go to Mike. I shake his hand. And you know you know how guys will like shake hands and they'll like pull you in? You can ask him this yourself. I shake his hand. I pull him in. And I said, 
I'm going to be calling you in the next few days, bro. Don't, don't worry about anything. Okay. He's, and he just kind of looked at me like, okay, I know not, you know, like, okay, whatever. And we left. And then I called him, I called Nate and I said, Hey bro, I don't even think I want to be in a band or whatever you want to do with you, bro. I, I just, I don't think we're, I don't think we're, I don't think you want one thing and I want something else. So I, I, I just think it's best. He's like, yeah, no problem, bro. No problem. So he's off doing his own thing. I don't know what he does. I know he developed like a computer game when he was 16 years old or 15, 13, something like really cool. I talked to Mike and I said, Hey bro, just to let you know, I know you're sad. I know you're hurt with what happened, but I still want to jam with you. I'm not even working with that guy anymore. He's like, really? Me and Mike from 2008, we've been jamming, recording music together till this very day. And now we have displaced music together. And I love the guy like a brother. I know. I feel like that is so LA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Who's like someone that you would dream to collaborate with? Troy Rosner. No Dude, joke. Reach I, out to him. Oh my God. I bet you could get to him. You know what? Never say never, right? Maybe, maybe. I, I will try. But when you're at that level of Trent Reznor, you have this like thick barrier of managers. I'm not joking of like PR and managers that like you just, they protect this guy. And it's not just him. A lot of them. Like I've tried reaching out to so many of them. Management will always be the ones coming in between saying, Oh, not at this time. Sorry. We're not, you know, it's like, come on. Is this what he's saying or what she's saying? Or is this what you're saying? Come on. Like, you know, so one day it'll happen. I'm not joking. It will happen. Do you have any tips or tricks to how you've reached hard to reach people? <laughs> Persistence. Literally go on their website, email them, keep, just keep going, keep going, keep going. And I've actually gone to the point of reaching out to their management too. Because a lot of those like contact me here, it goes to the management and probably goes to a PR firm. Sometimes I'll just Google an artist and management and I'll come up with their management and I'll just email the management and say, look, here's my podcast, X amount of viewers, listeners, can I get this person on? And I've realized one tip is when they work with a um, PR firm because they have like a new book or a new something coming out that's the best time to get them because they are just going to be like, who are you? Where I'll come on your show. I want to promote whatever it is. And that is, that's one thing that I found that really has helped in the past with certain, <laughs> certain uh, artists that I've spoken to. Is there anything that you'd like to ask my dad? What was the toughest time when your daughter was growing up? If you could tell us about a time especially because you are a daddy of a daughter. So exactly. Prepare yourself. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, congratulations Thank on you. your new little one. Thank and this you. has been incredible connecting with you. We should do it again. My pleasure. Anytime. Now let's switch it over to grandpa. Brynar Agassi with Rena. Very interesting conversation. And isn't it funny how you can go out to L.A. and you're trying to make a connection and people that are interviewing you are trying to use you as a connection and see who you know by giving you the job that they get further connected, in this case, the music world. Isn't that typical L.A.? I found also very interesting that if someone really wants to be an artist and really wants to be able to make their mark from within themselves, and they really have to feel it. They really have to understand the mechanics of it and 
be comfortable with it, with their work. Or in other words, not to hinder your creativity that when you work for other people or you work for a, a large institution, all comes down to it's all about the money first and not about necessarily the artistry. And that gets, sometimes gets lost with a lot of people where they then have to be someone other than themselves. And even if they're successful, they're not really happy because they're not really able to energize themselves and get out their true feelings and meaning where they almost become lost, like they're a robot or something. And it's not where they really freely express themselves, which got them into the artistry in the first place. When it comes to Briner, he's a drummer to his own beat. And that's number one. And he'll work out the details and try to get it out there and connect with people that are also true to themselves. And that's more important than what other people think or whether or not it's really going to be a collaboration and make money. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 